This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employers respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. You deserve a moment to yourself every single day. And a delicious bite of a Keebler Sandies can give you that comforting pause. Relax this Sunday with a little moment to yourself and the melt-in-your-mouth magic of a Keebler Sandies. This magic is baked into simple shortbread cookies by Ernie and the Keebler Elves. So as life continues to fly by, make the most of your me moment. Take a pause and enjoy a Keebler Sandies. When you have health insurance, it's easy to forget about your out-of-pocket costs. That can be a lot of money. But are your bills accurate? It's estimated over 50% of medical bills contain errors. HealthLock can help. HealthLock technology securely connects with your insurance and flags any overbilling, wrong codes, and fraud. You can even have HealthLock work on your behalf to get money back from select past bills. To date, HealthLock has helped its members save over $130 million. To save, visit HealthLock.com today. Hi, everyone. Sophia Bush here. Welcome to Work in Progress, where I talk to people who inspire me about how they got to where they are and where they think they're still going. Today, oh, today, I am so thrilled to interview my friend and a complete legend, Chelsea Handler. She's here to talk about her new book, which is called Life Will Be the Death of Me, her brand new Netflix documentary, Hello Privilege, It's Me, Chelsea. And she talks so much about life and comedy, her personal awakening, therapy, learning to listen to your body. I know that might sound a little intense, but neither of us is that woo-woo. So get ready, buckle up. We're going to get into mental health, family, white privilege, politics, and we're going to have a lot of laughs while we do it. Enjoy. I'm very excited that you're here. Thank, Thank you for you. coming. I'm always excited to see you. I'm always excited to see you, and I know that we're going to get on a more regular train, and I'm excited about it. Oh, well, you know? don't bring up trains. I'm I should bring up a train. Oh, okay. No, I'm Oy, I, I went sexual with that, and you went to a much oh, no, darker no, no, place. no, no, no. I went to the Holocaust. Okay, awesome. So I'm going to scratch that word from the record. <laughs> um, don't they do that in court? They, like, hit the gavel, and they scratch it, and they Yeah, and what? Yeah, I'd like This to is my, what... like, RBG moment. I'm like, it's stricken from the record. We should, get, we should get her in here and do planks together, huh? We absolutely should. I also feel like maybe we should have those neck doilies for people oh, to wear. I love RBG. I who, can, love who doesn't love her? If you don't love oh. her, then you are a Trump supporter. <laughs> <laughs> her little purple super diva sweatshirt in the gym, I can't. Just keep planking, Ruth. Um, but to tell people, uh, you need no introduction, but to tell people how we happen to be sitting here together, how we know each other, I first have to admit um, that I was just, I mean, still am obviously, but before I met you, so thanks for not ruining the party. Sometimes they say, don't meet your idols. And I disagree, but I was such a huge fan of yours and your show. And I was like, I was always in, and then I finally got to come on your show and it was 
so much fun and you were so nice and so welcoming. And I brought my parents because my parents were also obsessed with you. And, you know, my mother's from New Jersey and she was like the most excited and you were so sweet to them. And it's like still a thing that when it comes up, they're, they're very excited. Oh, that's such a nice story. Thank you. Charles and Maureen say hi. (laughs) hi guys my mom's like i love that she's a crazy dog rescuer like me yeah yeah so how are you i'm good i'm good thank you yeah awesome i've been i've been listening to your podcast and listening to your book and oh it's just awesome thank you i've been and the, the freaky thing is is do you see do you ever see people like posting things on social media where you know there's some meme about a realization or like dumping a bad boyfriend or whatever and someone will repost it and be like, I feel attacked. The number of times I've been listening to your book and Dan Siegel is saying something to you and I'm like, oh my God, I feel attacked. I know, he's the best. Woo, I he's know. good. I saw him this morning. I did you? Like, yeah, just I could because I don't go to him as much as I did when I was writing the book because I feel like when you get that information, you got to kind of like then go put it into your real life Yeah. without an interdependent relationship. Like I don't, I don't want to be calling my therapist on the phone. You know what right. I mean? That's a step. I don't step too far for me. Yeah. You don't want to be like, I had a thought today. Yeah. Or you like he was, why went to my dad's funeral last week or not last week, last, I have no sense of time. So it was probably a couple of months ago, like six months ago. And he was like, you know, if anything comes up at the funeral, I want you to know you can call me. And I'm like, no, I'm not going to call I'm you. Just <laughs> I'm like, even a that. funeral, I'm not going to call you. Yeah. Don't worry. Okay. I'll talk to you when I get back. Yeah. I have a little bit of that where I'm like, Tough. absolutely not. Right. I refuse to tell you that I need help with something. Yeah. I'm good. Yeah. Um, for anybody who's listening who doesn't know, because we just really jumped right into this, Dan Siegel is the therapist who mm-hmm. is a He's psychiatrist. my psychiatrist. Yeah. So I wrote a book about him and my experience in therapy because I had, it just was a huge wake up for me. Yeah. And I was like, oh, I better tell everybody about this. <laughs> yeah. I love it though. It's like, you know, in a world where I feel like we're seeing more people feeling depressed, more people experiencing lethargy, more people experiencing burnout, these conversations, not to like be all woo-woo about it or to LA about it, but they really are life-saving. They really can be the the life preserver to somebody who feels like they're drowning. And, and it. I think it's very brave what you're doing. Well, thank you. Yeah. I think it's important to, you know, I was somebody who poo-pooed all of that for a really long time. Like meditation was one of those words that I was not interested in hearing. Right. It was overused. How do you, you feel know, about crystals? The same. <laughs> <laughs> crystals, manifest, universe, all of that jazz is something that kind of repel- repelled me for a long time. Yeah. And crystals pretty much still do. But, you know, like I just, it was a world that I thought was too L.A. It just, to me, it personified everything, like everyone who is in this town being a narcissist. You know, like I have a TV show named after me. I have books that are have my name on them. And then I go and talk to a therapist about myself for two hours a night. Like right. that wasn't in my plan. Right. I thought it was too cool for that. Mm. And too Did- smart. Was there another side of the coin, though, where, like, maybe you're like, I have my shit together, obviously, like, look, I'm on billboards, but was there also a side of you that thought, look at all the stuff I have, I don't deserve to be sad, I don't deserve to be struggling, like, what what's my pain compared to, like, yeah. all the people suffering out there in the yeah. world? Like, I, yeah, I, I, I didn't think I got, I didn't think I got to be in pain, because mm-hmm. I didn't think... Like I wasn't raped. I wasn't molested repeatedly throughout my childhood. I thought mm. that was what trauma was. I didn't right. think my brother dying 
was traumatic. And I mean, I knew it was on a guttural level, obviously, because it was Mm -hmm. so painful, but I had shut myself down at the age of nine. And you know what my psychiatrist so eloquently explained to me over and over and over again, that a nine-year-old does not have the ability to think about the situation in a whole way. Like you're not developed enough with that vocabulary to understand that death is an accident, not a rejection. Yeah. So when you don't, you kind of get stuck at the age that trauma happens if you don't work yourself through it. And I didn't work through it because my family kind of, you know, we all fell apart at that time. Right. And my father really fell apart. So I didn't go to a therapist until it was clear in high school many years later that I had some serious issues. But at that point, I wasn't ready to talk to anybody. I would sit there with my arms folded and any therapist who couldn't get anything out of me was another win. You know, right. like my parents would be like, you have to go to see a shrink. You know, we don't know what's wrong with you. And I and I just sit there, you know, and 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 they'd give up. They're like, we can't do anything with her. She won't talk. And mm. I'd be like, yep, because adults are unreliable because they lie. Right. And so I hated all persons of authority because it's like what, what I learned was, oh, my brother's going to tell me he's going to be right back. He said, I'll never leave you with these people, call, mm. talking about my parents. And then he died. And for me, that was like being broken up with, with nobody calling you back. Right. You know, like you're in a relationship for nine years and the guy never calls you back out of the blue. And when Dan put it to me in that, in those terms, I then was able to finally feel sorry for my little nine-year-old girl self. Whereas I never had compassion for myself. And when you don't have compassion for yourself, which is kind of the biggest lesson, you're not great to other people. Right. You have to be good to you. You said something that was so... Again, like not to be LA and crystal but I, I was like, damn, that's a brave thing to admit where you were talking in the book about realizing that you are one of the most sympathetic and generous friends. Sure. Like you show up for people, you fly places for people, like you'll, you'll rescue people from any kind of darkness they find themselves in if they're people that you love and maybe a stranger, um, which bold move. But you said that that's not the same as empathy yeah like when you close yourself off from your own deepest feelings you can't feel those things for with other people and like that that was a there was a clarity in the way that you talked about it where I was like wow I don't know that I've ever heard somebody phrase something like that before Yeah, I didn't know about empathy. I didn't know that I lacked it. I didn't know that I had a deficit, you know? Mm -hmm. I thought I was sympathetic, but I knew something was wrong because I had so much anger. And I, you know, after the election, I know you felt this way too because we've spoken about this at length. And we're both very public about, uh, which I applaud you for because not everybody is, but I I think it's so necessary and I know you feel the same. I really appreciate that because there's like people who tell me I deserve to like, you know, have my head cut off and have strangers fuck my corpse. So I really, any, any amount of, kindness for what we choose to do the 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 sort of boldness in like telling the truth that what's happening right now yeah. is not it's okay like, i'm sorry i'm not being a fake celebrity with a right. fake persona online yeah. and i'm sorry that i'm trying to fight for the country that i live in because it's inhumane yeah and, and that i'm a negative person yeah. because of that it's, you're negative yeah. you're negative or you're angry you're so angry it's like yeah i'm fucking angry there are kids in cages exactly. i'm angry and i don't even like kids that <laughs> makes me fucking angry see i really do like kids but i'm also And I'm also very angry about that. And it's like, I I think you have to be a bit detached from reality not to be. Yes. And this whole idea that uh, it's about parties. I'm like, no, 
Because let me tell you what, if Barack Obama had put kids in cages, I would have been just as mad. Yes. Like there are things that are just wrong. And if and if you ignore wrongness for party or person, it's like so what you're telling me is that you don't actually have standards because they don't just apply. Yeah. If your standards are malleable, depending on who's committing the offense, you don't have a standard. You have like an opinion and could probably be swayed with a cocktail. And I don't trust you. Right. Right. It's funny to see what these people fight for. You know, like Ted Cruz was in the paper today talking about fighting for Texas because of the tariffs to Mexico. And it's like, oh, now you're going to you didn't have a problem with kids in cages Mm. in Texas. Mm -hmm. This is your issue now. Mm -hmm. Okay, like what is there any morality? Right. You know, and that's I think that's why it's so important, you know, and it's and it's, you know, what I learned through therapy about this whole because I was so outraged and so angry and I had veins popping out of my neck. I was going into lounges at airports looking for the fox like looking for the fox people to confront them like oh, that's yeah. where i was at mm-hmm. and i was like this is not working for me <laughs> like this <laughs> level of outrage like, I just imagine, it's i don't know why i just imagined you like as a small child but in your body being like where are they like tearing through the first yeah. class like emirates lounge or whatever that's a very funny image to me right and uh I just learned and I read it and Rebecca Solnit has a great book where she talks about activism and that Mm -hmm. like, you know, everything has to be out of five. You have to look at the long, like every incident can't be an eruption. Every incident is part of the reason why you fight for the cause that you Mm -hmm. fight for. Um, Because it's a marathon. Yeah. You know, when when you look at the the length of time that real change, you know, requires, it's like I... I talk to a lot of young kids about this stuff. I'm like, I just need you to understand that activism isn't sexy. It isn't like the win you get to have on a Saturday night. It's not that. If you're going to commit to something, you have to commit to showing up even when you don't want to, learning, doing the next right thing, and also admitting when the thing that you thought was right maybe wasn't, and then doing the next right thing after that. Like, it's it's a long experience. It's like being married to somebody and and you know, having no intimate relationship, but hopefully you raise a good child. Like you're, you're, you're hoping to create a product that may not actually affect you, but it might affect, you know, other people who need help. It might affect the next generation. It's like why all this climate science denial is so crazy to me. I'm like, hello, the ice has melted. Mm -hmm. Like party's over. There's no denying so let's do something instead of keep pretending that there's something to win here. Like, mm-hmm. what do you want to win? A bag of bones? Yeah. It's right. very strange. Right. We're talking, obviously, a lot about therapy and what you learned. And you put it in a book, which is amazing. It's called Life Will Be the Death of Me and You Too. Have you been surprised by the response from this book? Because it it's obviously very funny, but it, it explores such deep um, and vulnerable things. And it it's different than other things that you've written. What What's kind of the, what's the conversation you're on the receiving end of now? Well, I, I'm doing a book tour. So I go around to all these different cities in the country so far. I just extended it. So it's going to, I'm adding states and stuff. I'm going to turn it into, Ooh. so what I've been doing is, People are different. People are interviewing me, like in different cities. Like Connie, you need a person. Yeah. Well, thank Call you. Me. It's almost over that leg of the tour, but I appreciate it. <laughs> yeah. uh, like Connie Britton interviewed me in Austin and Dallas. Jake Tapper did DC. Yeah. Sarah Silverman did San Francisco. Natasha Leone interviewed me in New York. God, so we have her. just kind of like a medley, and that's why I got into the podcast because they're like, well, "What? What about the people who can't you know go and see you perform?" And I was like, "Well." 
And they said, what if we do a limited series podcast? So it's yeah. like all of us are getting all these podcasts. It's so funny that we all just, you get a podcast, then you meet me and it's, it's so nice. It's just like the easiest thing in the world. Yeah. And it's so natural. And know? we didn't have to put on mascara. No, I did put on mascara this morning. Did because you? I was struggling a little with my look. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, so I, tried, I did a tour. And then once I started having these conversations on stage about the book and seeing the response from the book and, you know. Um, I thought for sure I wasn't going to be number one this time. I had to like literally talk to my therapist about it. I'm like, listen, I'm, I've been ego driven for a very long time. So I have to be okay if I'm not number one. Cause Michelle Obama was like, you know, at the top of the list and she had been, you know, somebody else had been number one once, but then she went back up. So when I got number one without having a TV show and all the support that I normally had when I had books, I was mm. like, I was so prepared to not be first place. Like, this is the thing I'm working on in life is like, I don't want to be competitive, you know? And I've never really been like that, but I've been self, I think about my, I I thought about myself way more than I was thinking about other people. Mm. Not competitive, but I was just so in my own lane, almost not paying attention to anything, not caring what anybody thought, and also just being so hyper-focused on myself. And it just came to a point where I had to look around, And it was the election for me. You know, I've been generous and nice to my friends and family and intimates. But what am I doing for people that are not in my life? And that's when I had the wake up call about the racism and the sexism in this country. I think everyone had a wake up call to, to elect somebody who was caught saying grab him by the pussy is our president is just such a fuck you to women. Mm-hmm. It is so disrespectful on so many levels and the mm-hmm. women that voted for him, you know. So all of that stuff made me really dig deep because I had to realize that my life, I was acting like a spoiled brat after the election. Like, how could this happen? How could this happen? How could this happen? And I was thinking about my life. Nothing has changed in my life Mm. through these two years other than just having like probably high blood pressure. Uh, Nothing has changed. Nothing Mm. material, nothing financial, nothing, anything. Mm -hmm. And you know, and I just started reading a lot more than I had. And I was starting to read lots, a lot more black authors and to really like understand how spoiled my life has been. You know, I've had struggles and I've had heartbreak and my brother died. Yes. But I was, I never got, everything came easy. You know, Mm -hmm. it was, I would be badly behaved or, you know, what people, the norms of society would deem badly behaved. You know, I'd write, talk about drinking and doing drugs and people gave me TV shows and book deals. And I was rewarded for all the things that if I wasn't white and pretty, I wouldn't have gotten uh, Mm. at that time. And so I always thought, oh, I worked really hard. Nobody works harder than me. And the reality was like, no, you're fucking lucky too. You're Mm -hmm. fucking lucky that you were born in a place where you got an education, that you were never starving. I was never hungry. I was never sexually assaulted. I've been fucking lucky. And that's 90% of it, you know? So I wanted to add on to that with something with more depth. I wanted to add knowledge. And I, you know, and I've been kind of, even before the election, I had been steering off in that direction because after eight years of Chelsea Lately, I, I know, you know, that people who loved that show really loved that show. But for me, I had to grow up more, you know, and mm-hmm. I had to have evolution. And so when I went to Netflix, I was trying to become more of an adult, but I hadn't done the inside work. It was like, you know, I did mm-hmm. externally. I was like, let's make it more serious. Let's talk to pol- politicians. Let's get involved and let's do social activism and and bring awareness to things. But I hadn't done the work on myself yet. So by the time the election came around, that's when I was like 
spun it. You know, I just spun out with that result. And at that point, then I couldn't work. I was like, I can't do this. I have to go campaign. I have to go meet these people. And, you know, I thought I was going to just like fix the crisis. That's my personality. Like I'm going to go fix this election, (laughs) which thankfully millions of people felt the same way. So we actually did have a great result in the midterms, but that's what I was focused on. And during that time, you know, I said, let me go see a shrink. This guy I'd met on my TV show. Actually, I interviewed him um, for a segment on like adolescent you know, uh, brain development, which is perfect because I found out I was basically like nine years old emotionally for (laughs) the last 30 years. You're like, oh, that might explain a a few things. Yeah. So that's that's what happened. Wow. And I'm grateful for it because now I see a lot more clearly, you know, it changes your perspective on everything. I feel like, Mm -hmm. you know, I don't like the word awakening or enlightened just because of all the woo-woo, but I think there are many wake-up calls in life, and it's up to you to answer the phone. Right. You're like, am I going to continue to hit snooze, or am I going to go for this? And I do think, I mean, to your point, shared rage. Like, literally, I have a I have a gray streak in my head now. It's not like a few gray hairs. It's like a chunk a of hair. They call that a shock. Yes, it is a shock. My hairdresser was like, are you okay? And I was like, no, I'm not okay. No, you're like, turn the news on. I'm Hello? Not okay. Like, how could anybody be okay? Were you addicted um, to the news like I was? Like the news cycle? Or did you not do that? Oh, yeah. Yeah. And, and I think for me, especially leading into the election, you know, I was still working, uh, acting on a TV show. Uh, and so people were like losing their shit because I wouldn't get off my phone. And I was like, what about the fact that I am consuming news at a speed at which you would think that somebody would need to be popping an Adderall every hour to get through, but I'm I'm fueling myself with rage, yeah. not amphetamines. I couldn't look away. I was reading every article. I was reading every analysis. I was looking at, at you know, I wanted to know what was happening in the newspapers in Ohio and the newspapers in Florida and the newspapers in LA and the newspapers. It was like, it was manic because I too couldn't understand how basic decency could be so quickly cast aside. Mm-hmm. And it required a, a sort of larger analysis for me of what hopelessness can feel like in different communities and and what and and at how you know the PR machine can work. Like Donald Trump is a fucking idiot, but he's good at publicizing himself. Because he learned to do that on a reality show. Well, he's good at li- he's good at lying, you yes. would say, but he's not really that good at it. It's that well, people no. are are gullible. And, I mean, any mm-hmm. clear headed person would look at a man like that, screaming and yelling, and going this guy, and say this guy is not equipped to be the president of the United States. He of can't course. string a sentence together. Of he's course. never answered one question on policy in his no. entire presidency. No, and he just like stalked around on the debate stage, like you know. An animal. Yeah, and we fell for it. So what does it say about society? I think that yeah. there is a lot more people becoming awake mm-hmm. because of this. And mm-hmm. they're like, you know, even the meditation apps that are all out there. Calm. I meditate now. Yeah. Calm. Headspace. I love Headspace. Me too. And Andy's like, voice is so and nice. And breathe. And like, yeah. And and it's like, there's a reason why everybody has that. There's a reason. Like these two things happen at the same time. Like mm-hmm. a level of raise, a raising of consciousness comes at the same time that this reality television star is the president of the United States. Yes. And I think that for a lot of people who naively believed, like, look at us, we're solving things. We elected a black president. We we have a female candidate. We are doing all this big progress. It's like what wasn't being talked about, at least 
not in places I was aware of. And I do read a lot of the news, but also I'm very aware that white privilege is a real thing and that there were things that I wasn't reading before or or not enough of before. Um, but it I didn't learn until this fallout from the, the Trump disaster that after Barack Obama got elected, the number of young black men being shot by the police started increasing. There was like this direct correlation. Mm, yeah. And there, so, so to me, it was so indicative of this base, insidious, subconscious, tribalistic grossness that I think a lot of us have wanted to assume we've grown past in the early, you know, yeah. in the early 2000s. And it's like, no. You know, think about what we were doing 100 years ago. We were a disaster. Mm -hmm. So we have to continue to do the work as though we're on the precipice of falling back into the disaster pit because clearly we are. Mm -hmm. We fell back in. And I, I think it's incredible to see people who are waking up to these things, to see people who are saying, I thought I knew, or I'm embarrassed I didn't know, or I thought that I knew and I'm embarrassed I didn't know more, whatever your sort of personal space is, to, to find yourself in a space and say, I wasn't aware of this part or that part or any of my privilege, and I want to fix it. You know, that that's the only sort of silver lining yeah. of this situation to me it is it's wake you know i just shot a film for netflix a documentary about white privilege mm. called hello privilege it's me chelsea because <laughs> you really do need to you know if you're not part of the solution then you're part of the problem yeah. and if you're benefiting from white privilege which yep. we all are um then you're part of the problem yeah. so you have to use your platform i mean i feel so passionately now in my life thank goodness that i'm here and 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 you know I, that that I, I have to, it's about making a contribution, not mm -hmm. cashing a check. It's right. like, okay, I've got this. I'm going to use it. I'm, I can, I have a career. I can pretty much do whatever I want, whenever I want. Why not do the good stuff? Mm -hmm. Why not make, do a, you know, write a book that is so meaningful that, that people can say, oh my God, you're telling my story. This is what happened to me, or this is why I was so angry. And, and now yeah. it makes sense. And I want to go to therapy. Like that's a good contribution. It's not just me stroking my own ego going, look, I wrote another book. It's yeah. about giving something away. You know what I mean? And and with the documentary, it was, you know, I still want to have fun and be stupid and silly and all of those yeah. things. But we have we have a real situation right now. And so everything, any like enlightenment that any of us can bring to the table, it's our responsibility to do so. Yeah, I think so, too. Why do you think that white people get so upset about talking about white privilege? Because they don't want to say the wrong thing mm. and they don't want to... First of all, no one can ask real questions. People are so scared, you know. If I, you know, in the trans community, I want to understand the pronouns. I want to understand. I want to be your ally. Show, mm -hmm. t please tell me how to be a better ally and advocate for you. Mm -hmm. And any marginalized community, you know, because we're in the unmarginalized community. Even though we're women, we are white. And mm -hmm. we have had nice lives, you know. Mm -hmm. And uh, for the most part, there's never been any real, real struggle for me. Um and that's just not the way it is for everybody else. And to close a blind eye to that 
is is so disrespectful to so many people. Mm-hmm. It's also disrespectful to yourself. You know, people, the, the, the most common term you hear when you're talking to conservatives or people who uh, think that you're accusing them of being racist is like, I'm never, I don't see any racism. I don't see, you know, the first thing they say is like, I'm good with black people. I had a black friend. And you're like, okay, well, that's so, sounds so racist. Yeah. Or I would, I've never noticed any racism. We were out, we were in Georgia at this like very like white community, you know, one of those private communities. And I was talking to some women there and she's like, I've never seen any, ra- I, I've never seen any racism. And I'm like, but would you, are you looking out for that? Mm. You're white with a bunch of white people. Where would you see it? So it's about opening your minds. And, you know, so a lot of these people haven't ever had their thinking challenged. Mm-hmm. So they haven't been out of a small town or, and they, they don't know black people. So, you know, it's all about like that stuff, you know, and it was very self incriminating in a way, not incriminating, that's not the right word, but it was like, oh, I'm just, like, I live in Bel Air. I moved from LA, from New Jersey, where there was one black kid in my school. Mm-hmm. I moved to LA, I lived in Brentwood, Santa Monica, and now I live in Bel Air. So who the fuck am I? You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I'm doing exactly what other white people do, right. is, which is go around other white people. That's comfortable. Go what you're comfortable with, how you were raised. No, what I need to do is go live somewhere more diverse, not Bel Air, So that's why I'm trying to sell my house. And that's why we're here today, Sophia. I'm putting my house on the market on this podcast. Pause the conversation. We're going to do an ad read quickly. Okay. It is for Chelsea's house. I have no idea. Realtor.com. Isn't the Hilton family Uh, a good realtor? Um, Isn't that hotels? Yeah, Hilton Hotel. Oh, it's like a hotel. My house is like a mini hotel. It's really big. It's not really big. It's a mini hotel, like a little mini hotel. So for most of us, that's really big. Yeah, it's big. Okay. All right. Well, maybe we'll re-record that and I'll anyway, get some Anyway, I'm going to go it. move to a black neighborhood is what I'm going to say. <laughs> what I'm gonna, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to sell my house and then, yes. But we're all guilty of it in some ways. Yeah. We just have to be more aware. One of the things that I, that I think, if I may, that is really important is separating the person from whiteness when you talk about it because what I find is that people will say like show me my privilege show me and I'm like no 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 no. I'm not saying your life hasn't been hard I'm not saying you haven't been through trauma I'm not saying you haven't been through assault or violence or poverty or any of those things I'm just saying that your race didn't add to that your race didn't prevent you from getting a mortgage you the the name that goes on your job application didn't prevent you from getting an interview um all of these things that are so proven in the data science it's like as as white women we are not four times more likely to die giving birth than as black women are like that's just a disparity that should upset all of us and especially if we talk about being um into community or wanting to make the world a better place we have to look at that information and and so i think that reminding people that it's like you may not be paying into a system of privilege but you were born benefiting from it and that doesn't make you a bad person what it means is that when you become aware of it you need to try to do something about it you mm-hmm. need to pay your privilege forward you need to as you were saying you've been talking about the authors of color whose work you've been reading and that you are talking about i i share work from the women of color who run in the activist circles that i learn from i share their work constantly online. I'm constantly making sure that I can mobilize my followers to be their followers, Mm -hmm. to make sure that we are cross-pollinating these conversations. And I'm not saying that like that's saving the world or making the difference, but it's 
figuring out how in any system that I benefit from, I can make sure others are benefiting from it as well. Yeah, that's awesome. And it and and we're learning and there's going to be more things and there's going to be more stuff we need to do. But I, I think that talking about the system and 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 also sort of shaking other white women and being like, yo, it, it has nothing for us. We are not benefiting from this system. Like exactly. where Ted Cruz gets elected, you are not benefiting. Yeah, I don't you know. know. I, and it also, it just, it's, it makes me so upset that women, because so many women don't, aren't, you know, they take, they do what their husband does. Mm-hmm. You know, they vote the way their husband does. Mm-hmm. Another reason not to get a husband. Just well, throwing that out there. But you, did you, you dedicated your book to, to your, my future husband. Your future husband. Yes, we'll I see. like that. Thank you. I what thought is, I'd put it out there because once I went through all my therapy and I decided like, I, you know, I, I was able to say, oh, this fierceness, this independence that I've had hold on to for so long was because I was protecting myself mm-hmm. and I couldn't be vulnerable. Yeah, it's armor. And I, and I couldn't, you know, obviously it's obvious to everybody else, but when it's you, you don't see it. You yeah. think you're killing it. You're like, right. wow, I'm doing great in life. Right. Until you're not. And then, um, so, I, you know, I finally was like, I, I sat down with him one day and I was like, I think I'm ready to be in a relationship. I said, I think I'm going to say a sentence I've never said out loud, but you've really helped me and I want to say something to help you. <laughs> like, I think I'm ready to be in a healthy relationship. And I wasn't, but I had to start saying that yeah. and to admit that it's okay to want to be in a relationship. Yeah. I had never even thought about it. I just assumed I shouldn't be. Like, I was like, no, 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 I'll do this. I'll have fun when I have fun. Mm -hmm. And I hadn't made great choices for the relationships that I was in. We're all guilty of that. Mm -hmm. But I really was like, you know what? I don't need to be in a relationship. I want to be in a relationship. There's a difference between being, I need a boyfriend and I want a boyfriend. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm okay to say that now. I want a boyfriend. Mm -hmm. And now, you know, my friend's like, it takes a healthy to get a healthy. And that's true. Yeah. So, so it's important to say that without feeling like one of those little needy girls who needs, you know, like who, because I always, I always looked at weakness as, you know, anything, sickness. Like yesterday I woke up and my throat was all fucked up and I had a day of stuff and I was so mad at myself for being weak. Like I was mad at me for being sick. And I didn't until like now that I have a sense of awareness. I'm like, what is your problem? And I, and I, and I was like, oh, you are so tied to being strength that you know any vulnerability, you know, is is just it's hard. So you have to keep practicing it. Yeah. You know, now like this morning I went to my therapist and I just came in and it was the first time ever that I didn't fight crying. Wow. And I was talking about being mad at myself for being sick, but I was like, what is wrong with me? And, you know, and he broke it down again and like directed it back to my childhood that my parents were completely gone. You know, they were out to lunch pretty much. Mm -hmm. They had six kids. They were fucking tired. Then their son dies. So they're even more tired. They're in despair. They never picked me up. They never came to school. It was kind of like neglect. There was a lot of love, but not a lot of follow through. Mm -hmm. And so the time that I got the attention from them was when I was sick. Then everybody perked up and was like, okay, what do you need? What do you need? And so in my mind, I have this like subliminal feeling that when I'm being sick, it's because I want attention. And I hated that about myself. So I now I fight being sick because I know as a little girl, I used it as a tool. 
So there's this internal battle going on, and only somebody you sit down with for many, you know, months or sometimes years can really explain yourself to you. <laughs> Isn't that crazy? Where you're like, yeah. oh, look at that. It's all connected. Yeah. I mean, the hallways and light bulbs yeah. are just popping off, you know? As you learn about your, your, your patterns of behavior, you're like, oh, you know, I said, why don't I have patience for people like, or, you know, if somebody screws me over, it's fuck you. It's over. It's a wrap on you. Like I've ended friendships on a dime a million times Mm -hmm. and people are left in the dust. I never think about them again. And I said, why do I do that? He goes, think about it and answer that question. And I'm like, I don't know. That's what I'm paying you money for. You're like, you tell me the answer. Yeah. I'm like, you tell me the fucking answer. I don't want to think. (laughs) And he's like, because that's your blueprint for how a relationship ends. The very mm-hmm. first relationship you ended or that ended was mm-hmm. the guy saying he was here and coming back and then he was gone. And you were mad at him for 30 years for leaving you. So that's how you think you break up. And I was like, holy shit. Yeah. That was just like fireworks in my brain. Yeah. I was like, that's exactly right. And I have no, I don't even think about the people. Like they're out of my mind. I, it's funny that you say that I've had this thing and I always joke. I'm like, you know, I've got like this Italian family in like Jersey and New York. Like it's that, you know, I'm like mob wives is like my family. And not really, but like That's a little fun. bit. And I, yeah, I got I fun like, for, for an outsider. I mean, it's very fun and ridiculous. But like, there is a real. I remember I got fucked over by this guy once, and I like got a phone call from my uncle Raymond, and he's like, Sophia, and I'm like, Uncle Ray, like, what's going on? And he goes, You tell me the next time that motherfucker's gonna be in New York. And I was like, No, absolutely not. And he goes, What? Who's gonna know if I break his knees? I'm like, eh, Me. And everyone, are you insane? Like that, you know, that, but that's love and it's a little crazy, but I, I've attributed that kind of like crazy, I would commit a crime for you love, like not really, but kind of like when I really love someone, my favorite thing to say to them is like, if you ever need to bury a body, just call me and we'll figure it out. Yeah. And like, obviously I've never buried a body, but like, I don't know. I watched Breaking Bad. How hard could it be? Um, but, but that thing, that sort of like romanticized idea that you hope no one ever follows through on, let me just clarify, sort of morphed in my head into this thing that I've caught myself saying over and over again. I'm like, I will take a lot and then I will take too much. But then there will be a day when the too much, I'm just done. And if you betray me, I'm scorched earth. I'm like, if if you're gonna cross me, have the guts to like look me in the eye and stab me in the stomach. Don't ever stab me in the back because then like, nothing will get through this. And that is about what I learned as a kid. That is about patterns of things that I've been through. And it's so, when you start to learn that stuff, you're just like, oh my God. And then what I, what it, what was the real revelation for me is that that toughness, that shield, that like impenetrable wall was a lie because the foundation was a mess from being a little kid who didn't know how to build one and and the stuff that gets under and the stories that I'll that I'll tell myself that I'm so sure of that you know somebody did this or said this or this is what this means it's like it's such a detrimental thing to live with but you don't know it until somebody turns the light on in the hallway mhm yeah oh and then you're just like, you know, you have to be in a place in your life where mm-hmm. you can accept it. Like I was learning yeah. bad things about myself or not bad things, but negative things about myself. And I was becoming like from him, you know, and it, not like he was sitting around insulting me, but like the lack of empathy. And, yeah. you know, and I came in for my lack of patience. I have no patience. I was like, I, I can't deal with people. Everyone annoys the shit out of me. You know, I was like, 
in a constant state of agitation. Mm -hmm. And I was just like, God, you know, I need a channel change. And so it came at the right time for me. You know, you can look back and go, God, I wish I would have sorted that out. But that's my, you know, that's why I write the book so that somebody does sort it out before they're in their 40s because you Mm -hmm. have the opportunity to take a look at yourself. And we all have trauma. There's There's no one who can go through life and that hasn't had their heart broken or is grieving in some way or has had some trauma. That's the human experience. So nobody needs to pretend that they didn't have that. Mm -hmm. It's about patching yourself back up and going through it, not around it, which is what I did. I hopscotched around it, it, partied really hard to avoid it. When that didn't work out, I pivoted to something else, worked my ass off, Mm -hmm. you know, said yes to everything, did every book tour, did every stand-up tour. While I was doing a show five nights a week, I toured the country. I slept like, you know, people would go, oh my God, she's so strong. She's so strong. And I love to hearing that they're like mm-hmm. she can do anything how can you travel i'd be like it's nothing it's no problem i'd fly in from you know michigan and on a monday morning after doing two shows there and have to do a show every day and yeah i just kept going because moving is doing and avoiding anything yeah. real oh yeah i n- did not know how to sit still until this I podcast quit my last job until this very podcast look how still i am Look how still you are. Look at us adulting. Shit. Shit. Seriously. Yeah. Oh, God. When the light turns on in the hallway and you're like, this is what being a fucking adult is. This is horrible. Um, But it was interesting because going around pain for me, I had this like pretty gnarly experience on my last job and it went on for years and I, I tried to solve it every which way, but like never really just stopped. Like what I needed to do was sit down in the middle of the room and just ball and let everyone see it. Yeah. But I was like tough, 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 good, good, good. And I'd go home and like cry in the fetal position on the floor of my apartment every night. And, and what I realized is that I knew when it needed to stop and I kept pushing myself to do it and I never stopped and I never slept and people would be like, I don't know how you do it all. And I'd be like, yeah, because it becomes fuel, right? And I'd fly home every weekend and I'd make sure I wasn't missing birthdays and I'd go to the thing in New York and I'd go back to Chicago and I'd fly to the, and I wasn't stopping so that I didn't have to feel it. And then when I, when my body started to shut down and when I really couldn't keep up with it anymore, Instead of letting myself be as upset as I was, my fuse started getting shorter. So that thing that you're Mm -hmm. saying about like everyone's annoying, my fuse got shorter and shorter Mm -hmm. and shorter and I was angry all the time Mm -hmm. because I was looking around. My my inner child was looking around going, how the fuck are none of you paying attention to this and how is nobody standing up to this and why do I have to do this alone and what? And it had never occurred to me that I didn't need to be there. I was like, I have to fix it. And why, why doesn't anybody else want to, you know, why does everybody look away? And why does everybody laugh when the thing isn't funny? And, and then I was like, oh, but I'm keeping myself here. Wow. I'm staying. Like, what the fuck am I staying for? Yeah. This isn't my responsibility. Yeah. Like, this is, I've said the piece. I've done the thing. I've done the defending. I've tried to defend myself. And if it's not going to work, I could actually just walk out the door. But it had never occurred to me before. It's powerful to walk out the door. Yeah. I do it all the time, so I know what you're talking about <laughs> for different reasons. But yes. And on that note, she's walking out the door, everyone. It's, it's powerful. Yeah. You're right. And good for you for realizing it because it is. Yeah. If it's so upsetting, then you need to remove yourself from the situation yeah. if you can. And you can. Yes. And what a wild thing to realize. And like, that doesn't mean it's not scary. That doesn't mean it was easy. That doesn't mean it was the fucking financially smart decision to make or whatever. But- 
it was like, I'm going to do this. I'm going to walk out the door. I'm going to jump off the roof. And like, I'm not looking to die on this hill. And something that's interesting to me, because you, I love the way you make fun of your best friend, Mary McCormick, who's amazing. Whose house I'm going to straight from here. Are you? Yes. God, she's great. She's the best. Um, Everybody loves Mary McCormick. She told a story on your podcast about taking a shit in a thermos yes. in her car because yeah, she, she couldn't get to a bathroom. Story. I, I, I truly was like, this is brave. Like, these are some brave women who I can learn to tell the embarrassing Well, we're people. older than you. So maybe when you're Listen, our age, you can talk even about talking about my too. My palms just started sweating talking about that. Like, I'm horrified, but I'm talking about I mean, Talking about doing the shadoobie, which is what I call it, <laughs> into any container other than a toilet scares me. It's very intense. I don't know any the other way. I mean, I've obviously had to go outside before because of an emergency situation. <laughs> <laughs> but in in any sort of container, that I can't imagine. Toilet? No, that's like, horrifying. But you tease her for many things, which she takes like a champ. But you say that like you both you both have the Mary McCormick disease, which is people pleasing. And I'm curious about that because when you're the person who like wears the armor and has the wall and. The irony is that you just want to make everybody happy all the time. I'm and- not so much of a people pleaser as I am a fixer. Like, mm. I like to go in and save the day, like Joan of Arc mode. Like, I yeah. like that. I like, oh, if a friend's in need, they call me. Like, a friend called me the other day who's like a peripheral friend. And she's like, I mean, obviously, she's a friend. So, but I'm not, I don't see her. I don't talk to her. And she's going through this thing. And Mary's like, call Chelsea. Chelsea's great in an emergency. And I love that. Like, yeah. I'm great. And in, in if there's drama, if there's mm-hmm. something, if I need to, you need to calm down, I can get anyone to do anything. So it's not so much people pleasing that I have. I have a showing up disease. I want to show yeah. up because my parents never showed up for me. So me I have too. to prove to everybody that I'm fucking reliable. Yeah. So that's my thing. Mary is a people pleaser. She mm. doesn't like to hurt people's feelings. She wants everyone to like her. She doesn't want to ever end a friendship. Like whenever I would break up with a friend, she'd be like, oh, I wish you hadn't done it like that. Can't you mm. just do a slow fade? Like she's trying to teach me about a slow fade. Why do you have to make everything monumental? And I never listened to her. And she's mm. not wrong. Right. But I didn't hear her then. I have a little mix of the two. of It's like yeah, put, put you in a blender and I come out. It's a, it's weird, though, that thing of, like, wanting... Well, it's girls, too, you yeah. know? First of all, a human being wants to be liked, you know? And then when they're, we're not liked, when, you, when you're rejected and you're rebuffed by anyone, there is an anger, you know? You feel rejected, dejected, you feel angry, sometimes you feel sad. Yeah. Either way, it's what sets up, you know what I mean? Like, y- we all want to be liked. There's no one that's like, yeah, I just want to be hated, even Donald Trump wants to be liked by the people he wants to be liked by. Which is unfortunate for us because it's ruining the country. Right. But, <laughs> you know, it is a, I think it's a human, it's a human nature. It's how you go about getting liked is what I think where people differ. Yeah. You know, me showing up is like, Chelsea's solid. She'll always be there in an emergency. She can, I like that about myself because I'd never had that growing up. So that's what I wanted to embody. And then, but the people pleasing, like, I'm not that worried if people don't like me. I mean, that's never really been my thing. I'm yeah. pretty direct, a little too direct, obviously. I mean, I have been, where if I don't like someone, I'd be like, nope, not into you, move on. <laughs> now I'm like, that's just not nice, so right. I'm not going to do it. Yeah, you know you're like, I mean? maybe I don't need to share that thought with that person. No. I can just move don't on. Don't say things because you thought of them. <laughs> like, right. That's a nice thing to do to like, you know, step back and go, you don't have to say anything right here. Yeah. You can just sit here and not exert your opinion, yes. you know? And insert your opinion, I should say. And you, you know, you don't have to, you don't have to get in the conversation. You can just observe and be cool and chill the fuck out. I'm horrified at like the thought of hurting people's feelings. So I avoid that. 
kind of a thing, which has been a good thing to start unlearning. Yeah, I need to learn what you're on. <laughs> give me that. And I'll, I'll give you a little you, of mine. You I'll give me a little of yours. Have, yeah. Okay. Now, I mentioned that I knew when I needed to leave a job, but you talk about, in your book, you talk about getting to this point because you were running a million miles an hour, you know, burning the candle at both ends, that you you said something and I was like, oh, I feel attacked. When you said I, I liked walking off the stage better than I liked being on it. How long do you think you were in it before you were conscious of it? Or when was it just like so in your face that you said, I have to stop, like I have to take a break? I mean, people were telling me to take breaks leading up to, I think it was at the end of my e-show, I was so over the show before it was over. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I loved it for seven years and I stayed a year too long or I loved it for five years and I stayed three years too long, whatever. I was just ready for something else. But mm-hmm. I, was, I thought I was going to go travel. I'm like, I'm going to go take a year and travel. And then, and then I started, you know, I quit a job and then you get rewarded for quitting it. And then all these other things popped up. And then I started talking to Netflix and they said I could do Because I was like, I don't want to do a show right away. Let's do a docuseries because mm-hmm. I want to do something. I wanted to learn. Um, so we did that. I did take some time off and travel and then I did the show. And so there were two, you know, it was the, the end of the E show was one set of circumstances. The end, And the end of the Netflix show was the election and what that did to me. Like, I really just felt like, what am I, you know, I felt so uh, helpless. Mm. And I figured, why don't I just actually do something? Instead of talking about it, instead of bitching about it from my soapbox on TV, why don't I actually go to fucking Michigan and Ohio and Pennsylvania and talk to people? Mm. And and in order to like um, to cultivate that vocabulary that I didn't have, which is talking to somebody who voted for Donald Trump without screaming and without berating them and belittling them mm-hmm. was a skill that I did not have and I wanted to learn. Mm-hmm. So that was kind of like the impetus for me going in. Like that was what I told myself, like you need to be more patient. But obviously on a subconscious level, I was searching for a little bit more because that's what I got. Um, but it was, it was moments like with Netflix, it was I was consumed with the news and talking about it, and it and it destabilized me. It made me feel like the world was not right, mm. and that's how I knew how entitled I was because that's kind of the first time I ever felt that way. How could this happen in my life? Mm-hmm. And then I was like, "That's icky." You're really singular right now. You're really only thinking about yourself. And you have to get a bigger life. Yeah. You know, you get, I think I got lost a couple times, you know, like once I left, like the last year of E was rough and I didn't like it. And I was bitter that I had to be there and people tugging at me. I got sick of everyone knowing where I was all the time. And, you know, and I partied really hard during that time. I drank a lot, did drugs, all that stuff. And then I left, and then I was so happy when I wasn't working. I was traveling the world. I went on great trips. I got went scuba diving in French Polynesia. You know, I went. It just did whatever I wanted to. It's fancy. And then I shot those documentaries, and that was good. And mm-hmm. then uh, that that was a great time. And then Netflix show started. There were a couple of bumps in the beginning, and then it started to get good, and I liked it, and I mm-hmm. kind of got a handle of what I was doing. And then the election happened, and I think because I wasn't completely stable, it, it completely destabilized me. And so then that became really hard. The year after he got elected was probably the darkest year I think I've ever had um, in terms of mm-hmm. anger and in terms of like, you know, 
being mm-hmm. reactive. Mm-hmm. And what I really wanted to learn was how to see something I don't like or read something I don't like and to not react. Mm. That's the skill I went in there for and then came out with a whole other bag of tricks. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, because you think I need tools for right now. And, yes. your, and your therapist goes, the reason you don't have tools is because of what happened when you were nine. Right. And it's like, I'm like, who what? cares about that? I want to be, pre- I want to talk about being a better person. I want to be present right now. Yeah. Like, I don't want to talk about that, you know? And, and it's like, yeah, you have to, he would say, I mean, he even said, what, tell me about your childhood. I'm like, well, my brother died when I was nine. My mom died five years ago, 10 years ago. I don't know. I have no sense of time. And I'm like, and hopefully my dad will die by the time this year is over because it's a wrap on him too. And he's in an old age home. I'm like, I'm good with death. I just want to be a better person. I need to be more patient with people and I need to learn how to talk without yelling. So I learned how to do that. (laughs) It's like a one-year crash course. And you learned how to cry. Yeah, totally. God, that's crazy, right? Now I cry all the time. I know. I I cried today. In my car, I was like, what's happening? Oh, it's just, it's coming. I I just, I was feeling um, really frustrated and and unheard. And I realized that something that is hard for me is is when I feel like I'm putting in so much time and effort, not not feeling like uh, reciprocally prioritized is very hard for me. Because then I, 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 it goes to this thing of like, is my effort worthless? Does this not matter? And it can be hard to forget that other people are processing through a different lens. Yeah. And, and you, I, I sound like a stalker, but I swear that I'm not. I just was really doing my homework. You said something, um, in your book also, because I've been listening to it, uh, where you, you say this thing of, of what your experience was as a child when your brother died and what your experience was with your father and how you didn't remember that one of your sisters was home and all these things because you were in your own experience. And then you talk about how you had never thought before from your experience as a child with your dad what your dad's experience was having children. Or having a son die. Yes. I had no empathy. So uh, not that a nine-year-old is supposed to be concerned for their parents at that stage. I think the parents are supposed to be concerned for the children. Yeah. Um, but still, like, he he was a broken man after that. Yeah. And I didn't have any empathy. I just mm-hmm. wanted him to get himself strong again. Like, I remember yep. after the funeral, you know, in Judaism, you sit shiva. So people come over and they bring a bunch of corned beef and pastrami. And you're like, mm. what, what does this have to do with death? And, and and I remember sitting there talking, like trying to decipher what the difference was between corned beef and pastrami and just how gross it all seemed and how inappropriate it was that people were in our living room drinking wine. You know, in my, in my yeah. mind, it, that was a celebratory thing. My parents aren't drinkers, so I don't know where the fuck I came from. But and I remember watching rebel. my, my what? Yeah, um, that's exactly what I am—a <laughs> fucking rebel. Anyone tells me what to do, and I do the opposite. So, like with a book tour, like I was saying before, you know, I do this twenty-city tour with people interviewing me in different cities, and then halfway through the tour, I'm like, okay, I'm going to turn this into a stand-up show and do like a one-woman show. And you know, everyone has been telling me, my whole team of agents and managers and all of them is like, just do stand-up, please do stand-up, don't do a tour where you're doing conversations. I'm like, no, no, I don't ever want to do stand-up again, never, never. And of course. Everyone's like, oh, really? Now you're going to, and I, you know, added a bunch of tour dates. You can buy your tickets at livenation.com. And I'm like, I'm doing stand up. And they're like, you're so ridiculous that you, I had to back myself in because I have such stubborn patterns. Yeah. But back to what we were just talking about, mm-hmm. which was the father. Yeah. At Oaks. And, and how to see, how to not even necessarily see through someone else's lens, 
but be have enough space in your own awareness of your experience that there is space for someone else's experience to be in it with yeah. you. Yeah, and to not try to fix everyone's problems. Hmm. Like my dad was at the window. We had this bay window and I remember him sitting and we had neighbors over and we had some relatives over and my dad was this big, strong guy, you know? Hmm. And, a, and he was like the guy. Hmm. And he was bawling in front hmm. of strangers and I was ashamed. I couldn't believe my eyes. I was like, whoa, 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 whoa. What's going on now? Like our brother just died and now you're fucking, what are you doing right now? You're supposed to be the leader here and you better be strong, be strong, be strong, be strong. Don't be weak, 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 weak. And I, that was when I had to grow myself up because I looked around the room and everyone was in shambles and I was like, oh, this is really scary. Like now I really have to be strong. And I remember riding my bike and I'd ride my bike because anytime I cry, I wouldn't let anyone see me cry. I was not going to cry. My mom would try to trick me into crying. Like I felt she'd be like, do you, you know, do you want to talk about Chad? I'd be like, no, he's dead. There's nothing to talk about. It's over. Like that was my, you know, and Mm -hmm. I would go on these bike rides and I would bawl while I was riding my bike. So no, none of the neighbors could see because I'd be riding so fast Mm. and I'd be gone for hours, you know, just sit in the woods by myself. And I'd come back and my parents wouldn't even, you know, they wouldn't have even known I was gone. Mm. And it was, but I remember being coming so steely when I saw everybody become so weak. So for a really long time, and Mary and I discussed this uh, uh, also on an upcoming episode where she, I would get mad at anyone who cried anyone's weakness was a turnoff. Be stronger. Mm -hmm. Why can't you do things the way I'm doing it? Because this is the right way. You Mm -hmm. know, no capacity or space of awareness or focused attention on anything other than my own experience. You know, like I had my brother and I used to have cereal together at night when he would come home late at night from college and I would make him a bowl of cereal. And after he died, like I never ate, I haven't had a bowl of cereal since I was nine. Mm. And my brothers and sisters, when I saw them having cereal after he died, oh. I lost it. Yeah, I was it like, what are you like an attack? What are you doing right there? You, how could you eat cereal when we know what we know? And what, what I learned was like, they don't have your experience with cereal and Chet. That's your experience. That's not everyone's. Right. And that information is like, oh, God, wow. You people can get so stuck in their own lives. And I don't mm-hmm. even have kids or a husband or people that I have to take care of. Like, I was just so far up my own ass and my own experience. But I also think, like, look, I think it's badass that you're willing to be like, I was in this sort of very self-centered space. And more power to you. And I also think it's really important for all of us in whatever version of that we've experienced to say, but there's also a reason. Like you compartmentalized because you went through a deep trauma at nine. And the the way that you compartmentalized that experience for yourself and your own suffering and what you wouldn't, wouldn't show other people, those became the boxes, the building blocks that you built your life out of. And it's a very courageous thing to say, I want to open those up and unpack them and rebuild this. And and just like I even think about issues of, you know, privilege, for example, like we all should have known this a very long time ago. But any person who comes to the table, my reaction is like, yes, it's okay that other people are mad that you weren't here before, but also it's okay that you're here now. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm really glad that we're here now. Yeah, better late to the party than never like, at all. I'm really glad that people are doing the work. And in reality, we've all shown up to different tables first. Maybe, you know, like I, I came into 
the space of caring about activism because of the environment, because I was a little girl who grew up in California and heard that the oceans were getting polluted and it was devastated. And like, that was my entrance in it. it, it, I didn't know about what was happening to women and I didn't know what was happening to, you know, impoverished communities around the world. And I didn't know what was happening to minority communities in America yet, but the, the path has led me to, I hope, greater and greater understanding and willingness to listen and learn. And sometimes I think, at least for, for, for all of us, but I know for me, I had to learn to turn that willingness to learn and, and to hear and to recognize that simultaneous things could be true, you know, things could be true at the same time. I had to turn that in on myself because I was very willing to do that for other people. And and I, what I realized is my version of that compartmentalization was that I had zero patience for weakness in myself, which weirdly, per, which weirdly presented itself in these ways of like self-sabotage. Like I love being active. And when, when the election blew up the rage and upset I'd been experiencing for the prior four years in, a, in my working environment and, and, the election made me realize what the system is. And then I realized that by staying in the system of my job, I was complicit in the system. And like, I had a full meltdown, like sad Mac, that computer is never to be recovered. And, and it, it made me realize that I had to acknowledge that different things could be true at the same time, that I could have loved something and hated it, that mm-hmm. that I yes. could be progressive and also totally fucking clueless, that I could be a, a, a really good friend and also a very angry person. Like mm-hmm. I, I had to realize that all of this was happening at the same time. Yeah, that's beautifully said. You can be multiple things at the same time, you know? Mm-hmm. You could be kind and loving and be tortured. Yeah. So it's like, you know, people define themselves. People aren't one dimensional. Everybody has lots of different things going Mm -hmm. on. So it's just a matter of like tuning in and finding out what your strengths are, what Mm -hmm. your weaknesses are, you know, and what like my psychiatrist calls it your growth edge. Like, what do you need to work on? Me, Mm -hmm. I have to look out for empathy. Now I have this fucking exercise I do. Anytime somebody annoys me, I'm like, think about their life. Think about (laughs) how many people they have to deal with a day. Think about what they're, are they married? Does their husband love them or hate them? Or do they hate their husband? Like, I have to play this empathy game to get to myself a point where I get empathy more, you know, I have to yeah. overcorrect in order to land in a spa- space I, that's acceptable. I want the 2019 version of Gossip Girl where there's like someone going through something and then there's the narrator that's like, hey, everybody, but it's you doing the empathy test, like some character. And then Chelsea's voice comes in being like, think about their experience. Yes. What might they be going through? What's happening in their house? Yeah, it's exhausting too. Like he's like, how are you doing on your empathy? I'm like, I'm fucking wiped out, <laughs> asshole. <laughs> You're like, you've ruined everything for me. I don't get to scream indiscriminately in my car anymore. I had to, I had to apply a version of that exercise to my road rage because I realized that I feel like, given what we all do, that like I always kind of have to be on um, and, you know, be ready to like receive and be nice and whatever. And not to say that I'm perfect at that by any means because I screw it up all the time, but I feel like I'm supposed to. So my car is the place where I like let loose and I, I'm a savage. Wow. I'm, I'm horrible. And I don't like cut people off. I don't, it's not that. 
But I watch people do stupid shit on the road and I just scream and yell. Wow. That sounds like your outlet. Yeah. yeah, I drive by somebody who's texting and I'm like, that's the asshole who's going to cause the pile up and he's going to get seven people killed. And like, I just, and I was like, this might not be healthy. This, this thing that happens here when I'm alone that I don't tell anyone about. And now I've told everyone listening. Well, that's good though. Yeah. To divulge little pieces of ourselves because you know, there's a lot of people out there that are listening that probably do the same exact thing. Yeah. That's what you realize when you tell people the truth that there are so many people that are dealing with the exact same issues that you are yeah one of my friends and I talked about that how how there's this sort of and maybe it's an unconscious fear that if we share our pain people will be repulsed by it like they'll be like ew ick but really what happens when you share your pain or your failures or your vulnerabilities is that people lean in and they go oh you too and it's such a gift it like it, it it's like a way to deflate the balloon that's overfilled with all this like tension and pressure to be perfect and like you know have your instagram be curated like it's exhausting no it's not yeah exhausting another reason to be authentic yeah you know don't put on a persona and fool everybody how insulting is that mm-hmm. it's insulting to people to be pretending something that you're something that you're not yeah it's just awful and you know to worry about your brand it's like guess what this is my brand i'm fucking pissed <laughs> Yeah. I think people know that anger at the current political system is my brand. I think they're pretty clear on that. I actually realized I was like, I have to be a little better at being more of who I am in my life in those spaces, like especially on Twitter, because all I do on Twitter is scream about politics and retweet articles because mm-hmm. like that feels like yeah. what it's for. But I have so much also joy in my life and that's not what I share so sometimes I meet people and they're like god I just thought you'd be so angry and I'm like no I mean I think I'm a pretty nice person I know it's annoying that being an activist is equated with being angry yeah I mean the way I was doing it was angry but I think the way you do it is very informative and strong and why are we angry yeah why is it angry it's like negative the president is negative yeah he's screaming and yelling and he's calling you know the Sadiq Khan the mayor of London negative he's like oh this guy's a very negative guy it's like listen buddy my favorite is that he called Meghan Markle nasty in an interview and then on the air and then was like I never said she was nasty and then Prince Harry went to the lunch the state dinner with him why would he do didn't (sighs) he they're very proper those English people no that's not I know never have had him over there at a state dinner I mean I understand they're an ally and I guess that's again the long game I'm not playing it I'm playing the short game (laughs) I just want him to get impeached I want to vote him out what do you when you think about that, when you think about the last election, because I, I, I think about, you know, I, I loved you wrote an article before the election. You wrote this great article for Playboy about abortion. And it's so interesting because I think like so many of us thought you said you were like, I'm not worried about Roe versus Wade. Like that's settled, you know, mm, it's settled precedent. Right. And now we're like, oh, my God. Yeah. I mean, I'm still not worried about it in the long run. Like, I don't think we're ever going to be in a country that where abortion is not legal in certain places. But mm. criminalizing it in these states that they're doing. Yeah, this is exactly what I thought was going to yeah. happen. I don't think that it will take over. But I think that it, it involves everybody to stand up and stick their neck out. Yeah. And it's just horrific to me because it's like. You know, all those lawmakers, the guy who who said, well, we don't care. They said, OK, if it's, you know, if if conception means life, then what about all the fertilized eggs? And he goes, well, they're not in a woman. And I was like, so you 
you just admitted it's about controlling women's bodies. Mm-hmm. Like, Yeah. Someone – I read – there was a good New York Times article about what men would – if we punished men the way we punish women for getting pregnant. Like yeah. if men – okay, if you – they used all these examples. Like, okay, so if you got a woman pregnant that you weren't married to or da, 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 what, do you, what happens to the guy? Mm-hmm. And she's forced to have the baby. If you rape somebody and they're forced to have the baby, what happens to the man? Yeah. If you're – you know, uh, if you don't use a condom, then, then you, that's illegal. Yeah. It's illegal if you, the person doesn't want to have a baby and mm-hmm. you don't use a condom, that's illegal. Yes. I mean, and, and like taking the condom off yeah, but, should but, be illegal. And if men had to be accountable for children the way that women are accountable for children, I mean, yeah. for fuck's sake, they decide what we're going to do with our bodies and then half of the time they take off yeah. when the woman has a baby. Fuck you. Yeah, it's and so men crazy. are telling us what to do with our bodies. I mean, it's laughable. Mm-hmm. And women aren't getting promoted because their bosses are asking them if they think they're going to want to be moms. And it's like, you don't think that affects us? I, and, and I also just find it so crazy. It's like, if you don't like it, don't do it. If, if you don't like, if you don't like gay marriage, don't marry someone who's the same sex as you. If you don't believe in abortion rights, don't have one. Like, honestly, I can't believe my dumb luck that I've never gotten pregnant. I can't believe I think it. I'm pregnant like, right now. I mean, as I mean, I'm very fertile. But no, I haven't been is, pregnant. Is in a sitting long. across from me making it you feel like you fertile. might be having yes. immaculate yes. conception yes, happening? Exactly. I'm glad that I could do that for you. It's very hot in here. Can you imagine getting pregnant at 44? <laughs> then I'm a real dummy. Then I deserve to have a baby. I mean, listen, yeah. I, don't, I don't know. I don't know what the future holds for any of us. But like, I, I just, I think about it. It's like, it's nobody's business to tell anybody what to do in their personal circumstance with their life, with with what it is that they're going through. Like, I, I, I'm so amazed, you know, that Busy Phillips got on her show and said, like, this is what happened to me and, and this is how old I was and this is why I had an abortion. And, like, you know, here I am. I'm married. I'm a mom. I have two kids who I love. And I got to do all of this because I had a choice. And I just thought, like, good for you. Like, and and who is anybody to tell anybody anything? I don't know, but it does make me wonder, like, what do you, what do you think is coming in 2020? What do you think we need to be doing? Who do you like? I think that if the answer to Barack Obama was Donald Trump, then the answer to Donald Trump has to be somebody who's transitioning, who's Muslim, who's Native American Indian. I like Elizabeth Warren and I Mm -hmm. like Pete Buttigieg. Mm -hmm. Those are my two favorites right now. Mm -hmm. Uh, Pete Buttigieg, I've seen, I interviewed him on my Netflix show and I went to a fundraiser of his, uh, like a couple of weeks ago. And I just think Elizabeth Warren, you know, when I interviewed her for my show, I read her book and, and she does care. Yeah. She's somebody who would win an election and not celebrate that. Yes. You know, she'd just get right to work. She has policy and yep. she has plans and she's all for getting at the corporate megalomaniacs mm-hmm. and what's happened to this country and the capitalism. You know, this isn't the greatest country in the world. So stop saying it. It has mm. the greatest hopefulness in the world, yes. or it had. It's not the greatest country in the world. No, We're we not have greater greatest, than any other country. Yeah, we have this great story. Right. But then you look at these other countries. You look at Sweden. You look at the Netherlands. You look at you look at countries over there that have proper, you know, relationship and sex ed for kids that starts at four and takes them all the way through high school, and they have no. They have like the lowest rates of teen pregnancy and the lowest rates of sex assault and the low. And you're just like. Ah, there's so many things we could be learning if we weren't so fucking egotistical yeah. saying how we're the best while yeah. people are suffering. Yeah, right. Yeah. That's right. I, I I agree. I'm just really hopeful that we get to see all of them on a debate stage. I don't feel like I have a candidate, 
but I feel like I have a lot of hope for what's coming. And, you know, I'm just hoping that things like the PAVE Act, which would actually get us back on paper ballots, which are securable, um, gets passed because it makes me upset that like Russian oligarchs are buying voting machines in the United States and that that's not even front page news because of all the dumb shit Donald it's Trump crazy. is doing every it's day. Crazy. It's so crazy. So but to think about, though, what we accomplished in the midterms. Yep. Is like that's what we have to vote in the supermajority yes. because they cheat. You know what I mean? And I, I'm sure Democrats have cheated too, but that's not really our thing as much no, as it is Republicans. It's really not. We're not trying to suppress votes. We're trying to get everybody to vote, whereas Republicans want to make sure people don't vote. Yeah. So that's a big distinguishable trait right there. Yeah. And you know, um, it's very unconstitutional. Yes, that's one word for it. <laughs> I look at that. You know what I did? I had a thought, and then I reined it in, and then I said the nicer <laughs> thing. <laughs> Not to be too woo-woo, but like I made a higher self-decision just then. Right. That was good. Yeah. That was good. All this therapy's panning out for all of us. <laughs> Look at us go, girl. Look at us adulting. So I think about how everyone has something that to them is like a work in progress, something that they are working on, whether it's professional, personal, you know, political, life passion. What what feels like your work in progress? going forward from here? Uh, everything. A work in progress. My passion. I mean, you know, I, I read a book called Essentialism, which talked mm. about doing two things really well instead of eight things mediocre. Mm. And that hit me because I've always been spinning plates in a million different directions. And so when I wrote this book it and focused only on writing a book and mm. the election was also – and skiing. That was my – I picked two things. I'm like – well, I picked three, politics, skiing, and – writing the book. Okay. And the integrity of the work was so raised by me allowing myself to actually live it, eat it, and breathe it. And it was something that vomited out of me, so to speak. Mm. It was a completely different experience. Even recording my audiobook, I I was dreading it, dreading it because I hate talking and hearing my voice. I find my voice. But I, my energy is so different now. Like I'm so much calmer that I didn't annoy me. It's and, so good. And it poured out of me. And even when I got emotional, I'm like, mm-hmm. leave it. It's real. It's real. Leave mm-hmm. everything in there. You know, they'd be like, do you want to redo that take? And I'd be like, no, I, I know. Leave it. This is where I'm, I'm like at. I'm like driving around LA being like, oh my God, completely. Like I'm crying in my car listening to you cry. It's so it's good. It's what made me want to do a podcast, the reaction to people's. And then I was able to listen to my audio book on tape, which is something I've never in my life done. I can't, you know, I've never watched, you know, yeah. an episode sort of my own show unless I was wasted, you know, and my friends were over. Like I would never go home and watch myself right. because I was just so kind of like over myself mm. for a long time. And this was the first time that I was being so real that I had to embrace myself. So that's the moral of the story. The more truthful and the more real we get, the more grounded. You know, when people talk about spiritual awakenings or spirituality, I think of that language and I think about being grounded. Like I don't think about it in an ethereal way. I think, oh, I've got my feet on the ground. I'm engaged. I've heard every word you're saying to me. Every single person I meet along the way, every day I try to be present for, even if it's two seconds. And this is a game changer. Then you are in control of everything in your life. Mm -hmm. When you're calm and relaxed, then you control everything. And in the best way. And if something doesn't work out the way you like or want, you're still in control of yourself. This show is executive produced by me, Sophia Bush, and Sim Sarna. Our supervising producer is Allison Bresnick. Our associate producer is Caitlin Lee. Our editor is Josh Windish. And our music was written by Jack Garrett and produced by Mark Foster. This show is brought to you by Brilliant Anatomy.